You're listening to The Ridge Weekly Podcast. To learn more about Chestnut Ridge Church, visit us online at theridge.church. In a world where the very concept of truth is under attack, we are called upon to know the truth and to be able to defend it. The truth can impact our relationship with God, and it can lead to true freedom. Unfortunately, many in our society no longer value the truth, and they don't know where to turn in order to find it. Listen to this talk from the series, Truth Is, as we seek to know how we can graciously stand firm in the truth as we face those in our society who look to undermine it. Well, good morning. Love the front section here. This is great. Good morning. <laughs> good to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. Very good. Well, very welcome, all of you. Um, before I begin today, I wanted to mention a couple things uh, related to my family. First of all, um, I realize I haven't given you an, an update for a while concerning my wife, Karen. She's had lymphoma, and she's still under treatment for the next several months. Uh, but she's doing great. Um, she's just really weathered things well. It's, it's shown me really what she's got. I mean, she's, uh, she's doing just a, a great job. But she's still avoiding people and still wearing masks everywhere and those kinds of things. Uh, but she's doing well, and we appreciate your prayer. Second, I, I wanted to mention that uh, one of our children had a, a baby a couple weeks ago, Justin uh, and Katie, and there's the little baby. And the baby's named Lila, which is uh, it's named after my wife's mother, uh, Lila, but um, that is not their baby, it's mine. And I'm just saying that publicly, that that's, that's my baby. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, when I moved to Morgantown, I got a job working at a local bank and eventually was promoted as a supervisor of the drive-up facility there at the bank. And while I was in that role as a supervisor, uh, someone approached me from the bank about earning some extra money by servicing the bank machines, the ATM, the cash machines that were located around town. And so I agreed to do that. I wore a little beeper. And when it went off, I would drive to wherever the ATM was that had a problem. And usually there was like a $20 bill stuck in the dispenser or something like that. And I I fixed it. And then I used a polish on the outside. And it was really nice. But in those two capacities as supervisor of the drive-up facility and uh, ATM technician or whatever the title of that was, I had a lot of keys. And some of you have heard me talk before about how I had like 30 different keys and um, how I lost them once for several days. It was a scare, really, really scary because I knew they'd have to rekey all these locks. Uh, thankfully, I eventually, I eventually found them. I want to raise a question here related to those 30 keys. And the question is this, why so many? Why on earth did I need 30 keys? Now, it's not really a, a a trick question. Um, I needed 30 keys because I had 30 different locks or doors to open. The, the keys are not interchangeable. You can't just use any key you want to open any door you want. You have to have the exact right key to open the door. So these days I don't have as many keys, but I still have some. Recently, I had to spend a couple hundred dollars to replace a key for one of my vehicles. It had to be a special key. It had, you, you've done that before, right? It, it has to be programmed. You can't just use any key you want to drive my car. It has to be the right key. 
Now, why am I talking about this? Well, recently we began this new series related to the subject of truth, and I, I made the point two weeks ago that we live in a world that doesn't believe in objective truth. They believe in subjective truth. They believe in my truth, not the truth. See the difference? This is my truth. And I recognize that sometimes when people say my truth, what they mean is my, my interpretation of the truth. In other words, sometimes if someone says, well, that's my truth, they're not... They're not being wishy-washy about the truth. They're just saying, well, this is, this is my understanding of the truth. But a lot of people these days don't believe truth even exists. A lot of people don't believe you can know the truth. Everything you see is through the lens of your own interpretation, so you never know if the truth is the truth. The problem is that we're held accountable to the truth regardless of what we believe about it. You know, if it's icy out... Whether you knew it or not, doesn't matter. Whatever your opinion of the roads was, it doesn't matter. If you hit that slick spot, the truth will kick in and you will discover, yes, it was indeed icy out. Now, the first week of the series, I talked about just the importance of making sure that we love the truth. We need to be the kind of people who love the truth or else, I suggested, we'll fall for lies. And this is what Paul talked about when he was writing to the Thessalonians. He said, listen, in the last days, people were going to be deceived and believe lies because they did not love the truth. And as Christians, we should love the truth. And it's hard these days because certain things that are so obviously true in our culture, now they're saying, well, you can't know that's true anymore. Yes, you can. I don't think we, we, we don't have to waver on things that we know are true. Last week, I spoke about how the Bible is true and trustworthy, and I gave you some reasons why. I'm convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is the inerrant Word of God in its original documents. And then we looked at the example of a king named Josiah who responded to God's Word the way you're supposed to, from my perspective. He responded, when he heard God's word, he, first of all, he believed it and received it as the word of God. So he, he received this, what he heard, this is God's word. He accepted it that way. Second, he humbly responded to it with a tender heart. It's like the soil of his heart was soft so that the seed could be planted and could bear fruit. And then third, he committed himself to obey it fully, and this led to a revival in Israel. And this is how I think we need to regard the word of God. But today... I want to focus on the idea that Jesus is the key, the only key, the, the way, the truth, and the life to God. That there's no other way, no other person through whom we go in order to have eternal life. That it has to be Jesus, and there are some reasons why. My takeaway is that Jesus alone is qualified to be the Savior of the world. The reason he's the only one that could save us is because no one else was qualified. No one else has the ability to save us, and I'll explain why. I'll give you some examples here. But I realize people don't like this idea. They don't like the idea that Christianity, as well as other religions, but Christianity claims to have the exclusive path to God. People don't like this idea that Jesus made the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, to the Father except through me. 
And so we have to wrestle, well, is this really true? Now, most people, their perspective of how you get right with God is a perspective I actually read about a couple of weeks ago in our local newspaper where there was a, a religious column and they were describing how the way we should view all the religions of the world is that different religions are like different people standing at the base of a mountain and they're all around the mountain. So it's a huge mountain, got someone here a mile away, there's someone over here, someone here, here, and they're all climbing up the mountain, different religions. And the argument in this newspaper article was that they all reach God at the top. And so the argument was all paths lead to God. Well, first of all, that's not taught in the Bible, of course. All paths don't lead to God. And, and it's a mistake. But second, I personally don't even think it makes sense. Believing that all roads lead to God is like believing that any road you drive on will get you where you want to go. Does it work that way? Can you just jump on any road and expect to get to the place you want to go to? Several years ago, I was driving with some friends of mine. We were in Ohio. We were heading to Columbus, Ohio, where uh, all of us lived. And it was, it was night out, so most of us were kind of dozing in the car, not paying close attention. But after driving for hours, it's like, why aren't we in Columbus yet? And then all of a sudden, it became obvious to all of us. As we were driving along the highway, we saw a sign that said something like, Welcome to Dayton, Ohio. Dayton? Who's going to Dayton? Nobody was going to Dayton. The guy was asleep. He was, you, you can't just, every road does not lead to the same place, right? I mean, that's, that's the world we live in. In what universe is it okay to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose this road because I like this road and expect it to get where you want to go. It, do, it doesn't work that way. And so Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He said, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. There's this huge gate and everybody is choosing you know and they think oh this is the way to go and then there's this other gate over here it's narrow and not, a lot of people don't find that one but that alone is the true gate you know and so if all roads don't lead to god and all keys don't open all locks let me give you a third illustration here not all medicine cures whatever you got you can't choose the medicine you want right if you got a sore throat Gas X won't help you. All medicines don't cure the same things. The, the solution is, you know, if you want to get cured of something, the, the, the first thing is to identify what is the problem I'm trying to solve? What is the medical issue I have? And if you properly identify the problem, then you can take the medicine that addresses the problem and then you can be cured. Now, the problem that we're trying to address here today is how do people get right with God? to the point that when we die, we can spend an eternity with God in heaven. What do we need to do? Now, almost every religion on the planet tries to address this question. All the religions, or most of them, will acknowledge that people are sinful, you know, that, that we break laws, and we've got a problem, and we're not perfect, and people don't treat people the right way, and, and they acknowledge that God is great, and we're not, and how do you bridge the gap, you know? Most would say it's being a good person or following certain religious rituals or whatever else, going to church, church attendance. None of these things deal with the problem of our sinfulness. 
None of them do. You could go to church every single day. The, the doors are open. And what you are doing is being a sinner going to church every day that the doors open. <laughs> Nothing about attendance removes that problem. The problem of our sinfulness, which comes between us and our creator. And according to scripture, the only answer is Jesus. And so Peter said, and this is one of the quotes I quote often here, Acts 4.12, he said, there is salvation or deliverance from the penalty of our sin. That's what salvation means, rescued, to be rescued from our sin. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people. And we must be saved by it. Only one person has the ability to save us. There's one key, there's one road, there's one medicine. Jesus put it this way in the famous 1 John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because we're talking, this series is about the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. You want the truth? Jesus said, I'm the truth. I am the life. And then he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, people, again, don't like this. They'd rather deny that this could be true, but it According to Jesus, according to Paul and others, it is. And there are consequences for denying it. And so in Acts 3, or I'm sorry, John 3, 18, uh, John wrote, anyone who believes in him, referring to Jesus, is not condemned. Let me stop for a moment. That's what we all want. You know, the word gospel means good news. The good news is whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's a promise from God. You put your trust firmly in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You will not be condemned. The reason you're not condemned, by the way, is that he was condemned for you, which is one of the points I'm going to make here in a minute. But he took your condemnation so that God could declare you not guilty. So anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But then John goes on to say, anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. There's only one Son of God, and you don't want to put your trust in him. There's no one else. There's no other solution. This is the medicine that works. This is the key that opens the door. This is the road that leads to life. But as John wrote, if you reject that, then you're still under condemnation, because it just means you're still in your sin. The death and burial and resurrection of Christ did not count for you because you have not made him the object of your trust. Now, I want to explain briefly why I'm convinced Jesus alone is qualified to be the Savior of the world. So this is my takeaway. We turn to Jesus. We put our trust in Jesus because no one else is qualified like he is. But how is he qualified? I want to mention three things here. I'm going to, I'm going to mention them, and then I want to talk briefly about each of them. Number one is because Jesus is both human and divine, he alone is able to bridge the gap between God and us. He's the only God-man, and so he's able to come in between God and people. He's the only one. Number two, because Jesus was sinless, he was able to pay the penalty for our sin. Our Savior could not be in the same boat we're in, or we'd all sink. And then number three, because Jesus defeated death, he alone can offer eternal life. He's the only one that beat it. He defeated our greatest enemy when he rose again from the dead. That's why this is so significant here. He's able to bridge the, this gap, therefore. 
Now, let me talk about each of these. First of all, because he's human and divine, uh, he's the one that comes in between us and our God. He's the one that's able to bridge this gap. The Apostle Paul put it this way to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5. He said, for there's one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself, human. It's an interesting way this is worded. There's one God, because we believe that there's only one God. And then there's one mediator between God and us. So you got God here, you got, there's a mediator here, and then humanity here. And, and who's the mediator? Well, it's Christ Jesus. It's Messiah Jesus, himself human. You see, he was, we already knew he was God. Jesus wasn't like anyone else who's ever been born or lived. He wasn't just a great teacher, which he was that, but he wasn't a great teacher, just a, just a great prophet. He wasn't just a great miracle worker. He was the Son of God and God the Son. He was fully human and fully demo, uh, d divine. He wasn't, he wasn't average. He was the very and only Son of God. The angel Gabriel told Mary that, probably one of the most shocking things that Gabriel mentioned. Obviously, the fact that Mary was going to conceive and give birth to a child without her husband was a big deal, but the way Jesus is described by Gabriel is unique to Jesus. Beginning in verse 31 of Luke 1, we, Gabriel said to Mary, listen, now listen, you will conceive. You'll give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus, which means Savior. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. He is the Son, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, which only God could do. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I have not been intimate with a man, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, because this is a conception of the Holy Spirit, because that's true, the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Now we recognize that in the Bible, there are places where ordinary people are called children of God. You know, like in John 1, 12, as many as received Jesus, to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become children of God. But Jesus is a child of God in an entirely different way. He is the eternal son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And there's a mystery there. I admit there's a mystery there. John, the gospel writer, again, alluded to this in the most famous verse in the Bible in John three sixteen, He said, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. By the way, there's the condition again. Whoever believes in him, he's the only, only one and only son of God, but whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. My Bible study notes have a little asterisk by that phrase, one and only, and they say what it means is one of a kind or incomparable. Jesus alone, again, was the only one who was the Son of God and a Son of Man. Now, why does this matter so much? Well, because in his deity, he could live a sinless life. And that's what he did. He lived a sinless life. Again, our Savior cannot have been a sinner. I'll explain why in a little bit. But he could live a sinless life. And by coming, becoming a man, he could die. Because God can't die. 
And so suddenly you have someone uniquely qualified to say, I have no sin, I can die for sinners. And he was capable of dying because he wasn't just God, he was man. And so he becomes the perfect solution. Now, to what can we compare this Jesus? There's nobody that compares with him. And the gap between sinful people and a holy God is much greater than we think. You cannot reach God. God is, wow, way up there, holy, sinless, perfect. Heaven's a perfect place. We're down here. You can't reach God. Trying to reach God through our own human effort is kind of like trying to swim across the ocean. You just plain can't do it. Some of you would get further than other people. Some of you could swim for days, perhaps. Not me, but you'd still drown. Some of you would drown within three minutes because you can't swim. The ocean is too great. And we can't reach up there. What this is about is him reaching down to us. The God-man making it possible to die for the sin of the world. So, because Jesus is fully human and divine, he alone is able to bridge the gap between us and God. There's one mediator. Second point I'd like to make is this, that because Jesus was sinless, he was able to pay the penalty for our sin. Uh, Jesus could save us because he needed no saving himself. I can't save you. I can't die for your sin. I got my own sin. But Jesus was willing to do this. Now, this is an important thing because of the justice of God against the sin of the world. You see, God is holy and God is just. We all sin, and so there's this gap between us, and we can't, we can't fix our sinfulness. And I, I think we tend to think that God rates our sins. You've got the little sins and the little bit worse ones and then the big ones over here. And most of us sitting here would say, well, I don't, I've never committed any of the big ones. Or I committed this one big one, but all these other ones are small. And so God's going to kind of just sweep it under the carpet like it doesn't matter to him. That's not how it works. The justice of God hears and sees everything. The justice of God requires that there be a penalty for every single sin that's committed. He doesn't sweep a single one under the carpet as if it, it wasn't wrong or that it wasn't sinful. The holiness of God is confronting the sin of the world. And that's a problem. But what if someone came along who had no sin of his own? What if someone came along who said, I know there's a penalty for what you did wrong and a lot of penalty, but I'm going to take it for you. And because he was a sinless God, he was able to do that for us. He alone was qualified because he never sinned himself. Early on in his ministry, John, uh, the baptizer, uh, saw Jesus coming, and they had an interesting conversation. It's found in John 1, 29 and 30. We read the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. John says two things here that I find remarkable. First of all, that last statement, he said, this one, referring to Jesus, is greater than I am because he came before me. He existed before I did. Now, that's a remarkable statement why John was born first. Remember, John, Mary went to see the mother of John they were six months pregnant. John was, is six months or so older than Jesus. And so John was older. 
John came before Jesus, but then when John sees him, he says, this one's greater than I am because he came before me. What is John saying? Well, he understood who this was, the preexistent one, the eternal son of God. He understood that this is one who existed in the Old Testament. That's why John said he's greater, and that's remarkable. But then he says something else about that. He acknowledges that this one is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, scholars go back and forth about what John's alluding to. It's one of two things, though. When he sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's either talking about the Day of Atonement, which happened once a year in Israel, where a sacrifice was made so that the people could be forgiven of all their sin. And Jesus is that. He is that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. Once a year, it was the holiest day. It still is the holiest day in Judaism, the Day of Atonement. They'd sacrifice one animal, and then they'd release a second animal because that's how you communicate forgiveness. The one died for the sin. The other was set free. And we're set free in the same way. But Jesus is that Lamb. The other idea people have is that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. And you remember the story in the Old Testament how the people of Israel were in Egypt and there were 10 plagues, but the last one was the worst one of all where the firstborn in every household would die. But God told the people of Israel, you take a lamb and right at twilight, you kill that. It has to be perfect. You kill that lamb and you put the door, the blood on the doorpost of the house. When the angel of death passes by that house, he will pass over it. And everyone who took refuge in the house covered by the blood of the lamb would live. That's what Jesus is. So this is why he died, the sinless one, dying for the sin of the world. And Jesus, by the way, claimed this. In John 8, 46, Jesus asked this question of the religious leaders who were watching everything he did. He asked this question, who among you can convict me of sin? Now, can you imagine me asking you that question? Can anyone here convict me of any sins? I'd never ask the question. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't ask my wife. Of course, she'd say, no, you're perfect. We all sin, but not Jesus. And it's because of his sinlessness that God accepted the payment. He was the Lamb of God. They used to, they'd watch that Lamb for a few days before the Passover sacrifice. Every year they watch it, make sure it's perfect, because Jesus had to be perfect and sinless, and that's why he can save us. And so Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the message. The sinless one took upon himself our sin so that God could declare us righteous. So Jesus alone is qualified, number one, because he was both human and divine. He alone bridges the gap between the two. He's got one hand holding both. Second, he was sinless. Therefore, he's able to pay your penalty and mine. Okay, he could volunteer. He volunteered, I'll die in your place for your sin. And so the justice of God is served on the cross. There's no other way. You either pay it or someone else does, and no one else is qualified except Jesus. And then finally, I want to make the point that because Jesus defeated death, he alone can offer eternal life. You know, if you want to know what you need to do to rise from the dead, go talk to someone who did. You know, someone who's an expert. You want to know how to get to heaven? Talk to someone who rose to heaven. <laughs> He's the only one. Only one in all of the Bible that rose again from the dead. I, I realize you're saying in your mind, well, yeah, but Lazarus, he was, he was dead and he came alive. And yeah, he, he came back, 
but he didn't have a glorified body. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, had this glorified body. It was so remarkable that his closest friends hardly recognized him. You see, if this had been, if Jesus had not really risen from the dead, you know what would have happened after the uh, resurrection? Let's say Jesus survived the whole crucifixion thing and the tomb thing. Once he met his disciples, he'd be a mess. Say, guys, I just died on a cross. Okay, I can't stand. He'd be in a bed. What would he be? And yet he, would, he had a glorified body, and he says, I'm the, I'm the answer. Well, he could say it because he did it. He faced death squarely, and he overcame it. Now, this is why the resurrection is so essential for us, because we need... We need a Savior who has defeated death. If we want to go to heaven, he's the only one that can do it. And this, by the way, is the penalty for our sin. You know Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The penalty for what we do wrong is death. But what if somebody defeated death for us? What if someone could say as Jesus did these words to Martha in John eleven twenty five? Remember what Jesus said to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live because he was saying, I'm the very source of resurrection life. So this is why he's the one. Jesus can give you eternal life. Remember how Jesus said that to his disciples in John 10, 27 and 28? He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Which, by the way, if this describes you, you know Jesus. You hear his voice. Jesus says, I know them. They follow me. Then he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. That's the authority Jesus had to grant eternal life. So the main question before us here by way of application is what will you do with Jesus? And for some of you, it's, I just want to encourage you to, to put your trust in Jesus as God's only solution to the problem of your sin. No one else is qualified the tombs of the other religious leaders are all filled with their bones. But Jesus rose again from the dead. His tomb is empty. The body is not there. His closest followers, 10 of them, died as martyrs with one message on their lips. He's alive. We walked with him. We saw him crucified. He was buried. But he rose again from the dead. Put your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. That was their message. 10 of them died with that message on their lips. Ten of them. They did not back away because they said, yes, he's alive. We have seen him with our own eyes and they would not back away from it. This is why I say he's the only way. Have you put your trust in Jesus to be your savior? Because he alone is the one who bridges the gap. He alone was sinless so that he could die for your sin. And he alone defeated death. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to do so today. And in a moment, I'm going to close with a, a really a prayer of invitation. Every once in a while, I just close with a prayer that if, if, you're, if you believe what I'm saying and you say, I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus, I just want to offer a prayer that you can pray to receive him as your Savior. It's, the prayer doesn't save. It's the faith in the one that you're putting your faith in, Jesus. But I'll offer this prayer in a minute. If you're already a Christian here, a few applications. One is um, that we have a lot to celebrate and our Savior Jesus is worthy of our praise and our, our adoration. 
Second, that this message we have called the gospel is something that we've been entrusted with to tell other people about. A lot of people do not know about Jesus. A lot of people don't realize that, that you have to put your trust in him. Jesus died for the sin of the world, but has he died for your sin? Well, people need to know that. You know, they need to know John 3.16. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then finally, if you're already a Christian here today, the Apostle Paul talked about the fact that because Jesus died for us, we should live for him. I talk a lot around here about this gospel message because it impacts our whole lives as Christians. This is not just a message that you believe in order to get into heaven. The gospel is something we live by day by day. He's our savior. He's the head of the church. He died for us and we live for him. And that's how we need to be identified as Christ followers. I'd like us to bow our heads. I'm going to close with just a prayer again, something that you can say in your own heart to God if you would like to put your trust in him today. Something like this, dear God, I know I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. And I can't fix it. I need a savior. I need to be rescued. And I do believe you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in my place and for the sins I committed. And then he rose again from the dead, demonstrating that you accepted his payment on my behalf. And so today I put my trust in him. Today I receive your son, Jesus Christ, as my savior. Today I put my trust in him and claim John 3:16, where you said whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I come to you in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen.